You're listening to Paideia. I'm Cassie Michael, and I finished Ender's Game. So this episode, I will be unpacking the last three chapters, chapters 13, 14, and 15. So, what happens in the end of the book? Um, A reminder of where we left off was um, Ender's graduated battle school. He'll be moving on to command school, and he has some leave. Chapter 13, we open up with Valentine. Uh, We get an update on Demonstices and Locke. Valentine um, has grown in her ability to write Demonstices. Demonstices is published on all the major nets and has been invited to um, a president's council and is growing a large following. This angers Peter, so Peter stops helping her. And Valentine fears she is becoming Demonstices. Um, we also learn that people know that it's children. And Colonel Graff, um, he shows up again and um, brings Valentine to see Ender so that she can convince Ender to go to command school. Ender's been on leave and he doesn't want to continue his schooling. So once again, they use Valentine as a tool. Um, Ender on leave has been staying at this house with um, a nice bit of land and forest and a lake and he built a raft and he goes swimming every day. Him and Valentine go out on the raft and they have a conversation. Ender still loves Valentine. Valentine does her job and convinces Ender to um, go to command school and she tells Ender about Demonstices and Locke, um, and Ender leaves for battle school. It takes three months to get to battle school. Colonel Graf and the pilot don't get along well. I mean command school. Command school is on the planet Eros, and when Ender gets to command school, he doesn't like the planet Eros because it has low ceilings and walkways that slope downward. Um, Ender starts doing these stimulations and it's another game. It's the simulation is to command school as um, the battles in the battle room were to the battle school. Um, And after Ender does these stimulations, he gets a companion a teacher, Mazer Rakim. And Mazer Rakim really tests and really challenges him. But Ender is commanding his former friends, the people he met in battle school. They're his squadron leaders, Dink, um, Petra, Ally, Bean. They're all there, and they're all his squadron leaders. So, Ender is put to the test. Battle after battle, he's tired, he's worn out, and then he is worried about whether or not he'll graduate and whether or not he is doing, he's going to be the one to command the armies during the Bugger War. And it all comes down to one battle. Mazur Rakim tells him, like, this is the battle. 
and Ender wins. And then he finds out that the simulation wasn't a simulation. He was actually commanding armies. It was the third invasion. Um, so the international fleet had sent ships out to the bugger worlds. Um, for years, they'd been sending ships. And um, the whole time, Ender had been stimulating battles against Mazurakim, thinking it was just a stimulation that it wasn't real. It was. He was commanding real starships and real pilots, and they were fighting real buggers. And he killed them all. And he feels awful that he killed them all. And then it's explained to him, like, why they had to do it the way they did. Why they had to trick him into doing it. Um, and their reasoning for that. So, Ender stays on Eros as things on Earth are not good. There's a war um, between the League and the Warsaw Pact. And that war even comes to Eros. So, Ender stays in his room. He stays alone. He's hooked up onto IVs. Um, Ally enters his room and he thinks Ally's going to kill him and thinks about killing him. So then he thinks he's crazy. Um, Colonel Graf goes through a trial um, and Ender watches the trial and realizes it's really him that was on trial. They show the footage of Ender killing Stiltson and Boneso and so we know Ender finds out what he did. Um, Ender um, begins to learn other skills and um, Demosthesis retires. Eventually Valentine shows up on Eros and asks Ender to go colonize the um, go colonize the bugger worlds with her and be governor of the first colony. And he agrees. Um, Peter ends up being the hegemony and being in charge and conquering the world. Um, Valentine, as Demonstices, writes histories of the bugger world. While Ender is searching for more bugger worlds to colonize, he finds the fantasy game on a world. He finds the dead giant, and he plays through the fantasy. And he finds... A cocoon of a queen bugger and then he's able to communicate with the buggers and he gets their side of the war they knew him they built it for him because they knew him through the fantasy game so they knew that he would be able to speak for them so he writes the bugger war through um, the buggers perspective and um, he signs it as Speaker for the Dead. Um, the book is passed around Earth. Many people read it. And it becomes a kind of religion. And then when Peter dies, he um, writes Peter's story, um, again, as Speaker of the Dead. Together, his two books were called The Hive Queen and The Hegemon, and they were holy writ. Um, and... Come on, he said to Valentine one day. Let's fly away and live forever. We can't, she said. There are miracles even relativity can't pull off. 
Ender. We have to go. I'm almost happy here. So stay. I've lived too long with pain. I won't know who I am without it. So they boarded a starship and went from world to world. Wherever they stopped, he was always Andrew Wigan, in, um, iterant speaker for the dead, and she was always Valentine, historian errant, writing down the stories of the living while Ender spoke the stories of the dead. And always, Ender carried with him a dry white cocoon, looking for the world where the Hive Queen could awaken and thrive in peace. He looked a long time. And that's how it ends, folks. Thanks to thank you for listening to Paideia. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and um, I hope you enjoyed this series of episodes on Ender's Game. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this is Cassie, and this has been Paideia. So, now for these chapters, I'm probably going to discuss them more broadly, and I might not make specific um, chapter distinctions between them, because there's a lot of themes that transcend chapter lines. Um, So yeah, Uh, the first theme I want to talk about is um, identity. Um, And the first place I see it is in the identity of Demosthenes and Locke being known to people in the IFB. They know who they are, and they know their children. Um, and, like, the next place I see it is in um, Valentine's internal conflict with um, Demonstices. Um, let's see. I see it here. Peter, it isn't you and me. It's Demonstices and Locke. We made them up. They aren't real. Besides, this appointment doesn't mean they like Demonstices better than Locke. It means that Demonstices has a much stronger base of support. You knew he would. Appointing him pleases a large number of Russian haters and chauvinists. It wasn't supposed to work this way. Locke was supposed to be the respected one. He is. Real respect takes longer than official respect. Peter, don't be angry at me because I've done well with the things you told me to do. But he was angry, for days, and ever since then he had left her to think through all her own columns instead of telling her what to write. He probably assumed that this would make the quality of Demonstasy's columns deteriorate, but if it did, no one noticed. Perhaps it made him even angrier that she never came to him, weeping for help. She had been Demonstices too long now to need anyone to tell her what Demonstices would think about things. And the character of Demonstices gradually took on a life of his own. At times, she found herself thinking like Demonstices at the end of writing of a writing session, agreeing with 
ideas that were supposed to be calculated poses. And sometimes she read Peter's Locke essays and found herself annoyed at his obvious blindness to what was really going on. Perhaps it's impossible to wear an identity without becoming what you pretend to be. And I just think about theater and acting and playing characters. Essentially, that's what Peter and um, Valentine have done. They've created these characters, these alternate identities that are opposite of them. But they know these characters so well and they Valentine is scared of how she is becoming more and more like Demonstices and you know I wonder when I've played characters I put myself into the character um I make up stories and backstories for the character and I give them a life and I come to know and empathize with them and um I don't know I just wonder about the complex feelings that actors who play villains must have um and like you know Heath Ledger with playing the Joker you know it drove him, you know, he became very mentally ill from playing the Joker. And, yeah. I also see Ender struggle with identity after he's won the war. He's not needed anymore. He isn't needed to be a commander. So he struggles with like, what am I now? What's my purpose? What am I going to do? Um, and so he starts to learn new skills, and then eventually he goes off, and he is a governor, and he helps with the first colony, and then his ultimate identity is Speaker of the Dead. Um, so we see identity shifts in Ender as well. Next um, is this idea of power. Power has been a theme all throughout the novel. Um, and here we get a few new ideas of like what power is and who has power. So um, at the beginning of chapter 13, um, they have influence, but no power. In my experience, influence is power. And I think that influence is power to a degree. Um, but it's not like ultimate power. Um, and person or character I should say that pops into mind when I think of influence as power is Dumbledore from Harry Potter. I know a lot of my examples or references are to Harry Potter and it's just because 
I love it so much. Dumbledore doesn't trust himself with power, so he tries to stay away from it, but he does have power um, in the sense that he's a headmaster, and he has power of influence. Um, He can influence the mind of the wizard world, and the Daily Prophet, um, the government, the people with power, They know that Dumbledore has great influence and great power, and that's why in Order of the Phoenix, they slander him, and, you know, they try to take away his power of influence, and they do succeed in that. Um, So I think there is power in influence, and that's certainly been demonstrated by Demonstices and Locke. Um, then when Valentine is talking to, um, Ender, she's telling him about Demonstices and Locke and telling him about Peter. You've been discovering some of the Destroyer in yourself, Ender. Well, so have I. Peter didn't have a monopoly on that. Whatever the testers thought. And Peter has some of the builder in him. He isn't kind, but he doesn't break every good thing he sees anymore. Once you realize that power will always end up with the sort of people who crave it, I think that there are worse people who could have it than Peter. And I just question this notion that power always ends up with the people who crave it. And the first thing I'm drawn to thinking about that would contradict that is monarchies. Um, And like, you know, the ancient monarchies of feudal Europe. Um, I don't know that everyone born into power wants it, but they have it thrust upon them. Um, But I also know that they don't want it and that they don't crave it. And... Um, I'd have to research that. Um, But then an argument for um, those who wanting power or craving power getting it is democracy. You have to run. You have to put your name in the hat. You have to convince people to give you power. And um, a lot of people view power as service or view holding political office as service, um, and I wonder if there's a connection between power and service, and power and leadership and service, um, and I don't know, because we also think of the people in political office and with political power as leaders, um, even in an institutional sense. The one with the most power is the CEO, the president of the college, and they're also the leaders, and they're also um, sometimes thought of as servant leaders, Um, so there's a connection, I think, in all of that. Um, And I think when thinking about privilege and the culture of power, Um, 
you know, I have privilege and I have power over others and I don't crave power. I don't necessarily crave control, but because of where how because of the circumstances of my birth in our culture and because of how the culture of power works, I have power and I have privilege and I acknowledge that and I don't like the way our culture of power is in this country and I know how many injustices there are and I want there to be more equity and I use my vote to vote for candidates who I think will help change the culture of power and make us a more equitable, truly equal society, but I also acknowledge my power and my role in the culture of power, um, which is hard. I guess there are different kinds of power also. There's like, I don't know, political power. There's um, power in that you're in charge of others um, or you're responsible for others. There's power in relationship um, and power in like being able to do certain things without um, different outcomes happening to you. Um, so I guess a certain kind of power perhaps only those who crave it end up with it. Um, yeah. Um, then I see power with, like, the international fleet and the way they manipulate Ender to fight a war he doesn't know he's fighting. The way they get him to kill when he doesn't know he's killing. Um, they have power over Ender's mind. Um, so, yeah, um, talking about the end of the Bugger Wars and, um, and all of that, I really saw the theme of responsibility, um, and it kind of reminded me of when I read Judgment at Nuremberg, the play, and when I saw it, um, for, believe it or not, my Paideia class, and we talked about responsibility and who was responsible in World War Two, and how there are differing views of responsibility. There's direct responsibility, the person who actually did it. Um, or there's different, there's a spectrum, I should say. Um, the person who actually did it, the person who gave the order for this to be committed. Um, but we talked about in a lecture, I think, how there's also this indirect, um, responsibility and how really the whole world shares in responsibility for World War II because the countries who weren't, Germany didn't do anything to stop the Holocaust and prevent 
um, all the deaths that happened until later in the war. And maybe we could have done more. And um, the German citizens, they didn't resist their government. They didn't protest it. They just, the government said this and they just went along with it. Um, and so that was a really interesting um, play. Um, and yeah, so Ender says, I killed them all, didn't I? Ender asked. All who? asked Graf. The buggers? That was the idea. Mazer leaned in close. That, that's what the war was for. All their queens. So I killed all their children. All of everything? They decided that when they attacked us. It wasn't your fault. It's what had to happen. Ender grabbed Mazer's uniform and hung onto it, pulling him down so they were face to face. I didn't want to kill them all. I didn't want to kill anybody. I'm not a killer. You didn't want me. You bastards. You wanted Peter. But you made me do it. You tricked me into it. He was crying. He was out of control. Of course we tricked you into it. That's the whole point, said Graf. It had to be a trick or you couldn't have done it. It's the bind we were in. We had to have a commander with so much empathy that he would think like the buggers, understand them, and anticipate them. So much compassion that he would win the love of his underlings and work with them like a perfect machine, as perfect as the buggers. But somebody with that much compassion could never be the killer we needed, could never go into battle willing to win at all costs. If you knew, you couldn't do it. If you were the kind of person who would do it even if you knew, you could never have understood the buggers well enough. And it had to be a child, Ender, said Mazer. You are faster than me, better than me. I was too old and cautious. Any decent person who knows what warfare is can never go into battle with a whole heart. But you didn't know. We made sure you didn't know. You were reckless and brilliant and young. It's what you were born for. We had pilots with our ships, didn't we? Yes. I was ordering pilots to go in and die, and I didn't even know it. They knew it, Ender, and they went anyway. They knew what it was for. You never asked me. You never told me the truth about anything. You had to be a weapon, Ender, like a gun, like the little doctor functioning perfectly, but not knowing what you were aimed at. We aimed you, were responsible. If there was something wrong, we did it. Um, yeah, so Ender feels responsible and he feels this guilt and this anger and this sadness at realizing it wasn't a stimulation and that 
it was real. Um, and Colonel Graf and Major Rakim are trying to convince him that he's not responsible and that they are. Um, but Ender is. He made the calls. He did it. He's responsible. He killed them. And I don't know how he... It seems like it's a hard thing for him to grapple with and accept. Um, yeah. Uh, but I just was really drawn, like, that really reminded me of Judgment at Nuremberg and, um, yeah. And the idea of who is responsible. And also in there, again, I see intent versus um, what actually happened. Ender didn't intend to do the killing, but that doesn't negate the impact of Ender actually having killed. Um, yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, you know, Peter, I think, takes that guilt and that responsibility he feels, and I think he puts it into Speaker of the Dead. His empathy and his love for the buggers, I think, really um, helps him become Speaker of the Dead and help share their story um which brings me to my next theme which is love and the place I really see it um is when Ender was talking to Valentine it goes deeper than that being here alone with nothing to do. I've been thinking about myself too, trying to understand why I hate myself so badly. No, Ender. Don't tell me no, Ender. It took me a long time to realize that I did. But believe me, I did. Do. And it came down to this. In the moment when I truly understand my enemy, understand him well enough to defeat him, then, in that very moment, I also love him. I think it's impossible to really understand somebody, what they want, what they believe, and not love them the way we love, the way they love themselves. And then, in that very moment, when I love them, you beat them. For a moment, she was not afraid of his understanding. No. You don't understand. I destroy them. I make it impossible for them to ever hurt me again. I grind them and grind them until they don't exist. That, oh my god, that's just heartbreaking. And I really like the idea of understanding as love and knowing someone else knowing completely someone else as love. 
Um, and this kind of contrasts the idea of being able to love someone despite not understanding, but despite not knowing them completely that we saw in A River Runs Through It. Um, but I wonder, this also to me speaks of relationship as love, community as love, getting to know each other, getting to know our neighbors and um, stuff like that. What if we all tried to understand one another instead of argue? What if we listened to understand and not to respond? Would there be more love in the world? Would there be more peace? More unity? Um, I don't know. We also find out that Ender wants Peter to love him. And that, despite it being Ender's fear and Valentine's wish, he still loves Valentine. And he'll never stop loving Valentine. He goes to start a colony with Valentine because he loves her. Um, and after the war's over, he's able to be friends again with Ally and Dink and Petra until they all return to Earth. Um, yeah. Another thing or theme I saw is the idea of humans being used as tools. Valentine's a tool to get Ender to go back to go to command school. Ender's a tool to win the Bugger War. Um, and I'm just like, again, like control of your life and control of um, what you do. Um, and there is a quote somewhere it has the word control in it, but I don't remember where it is. So give me a moment. Well, I couldn't find control. And maybe I imagined reading it, but I've been watching This Is Us recently, and I've also seen, seen the theme of what we can control and what we can't control in that show with Randall and his struggles with um, anxiety and you know we don't really have complete control over our lives so many unexpected things can happen and I think it's how we respond to the unexpected um, things we can't control the things we can't plan for that really show us what our character is um, and our didn't know. He didn't plan on killing, and it says a lot about his character that he reacted with such anger and spite and guilt and remorse at having killed, um, I think. Um, lastly, I see the theme of what makes us human. As we learn more about the buggers, 
we learn more about humanity and what makes us human. Um, and I think comparing and contrasting the buggers tells us a lot about what it means to be human. Um, but on the subject of humanity, I happen to be open to this specific quote um, by chance. I'm not a happy man-ender. Humanity does not ask us to be happy. It merely asks us to be brilliant on its behalf. Survival first, then happiness as we can manage it. So, Ender, I hope you do not bore me during your training with complaints that you are not having fun. Take what pleasure you can in the intricacies, intricacies, um, intricacies of your work, but your work is first, learning is first, winning is everything, because without it, there is nothing. When you can give me back my dead wife, Ender, then you can complain to me about what this education costs you. So, that just suggests that the goal of humanity and being human, we're not human to be happy. We're human to be used for a purpose. We're human to fulfill something for the greater good. Um, and I think finding what your purpose is, is hard. And... It's not always going to be joyful, but you can find joy in it. So now, comparing and contrasting the buggers and humans. So first, one major difference is in communication and the way buggers versus humans communicate. With buggers, it's one perspective. They all share the same thoughts. There's one perspective one story. There's a quote in the book, I know it because when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, a single story. One of my favorite TED Talks, The Danger of a Single Story. And um, I got really excited. So they have one perspective. They all share the same thoughts. And that's what makes them act so instantaneously. But with humans, it's a back and forth. There's questioning there's discussion, there's discourse, there's multiple perspectives and multiple stories. We are individual sentient beings, not beings all connected through a, a queen. Um, we're not many different parts of one, like, entity, sort of, like the buggers. So, to me, that difference says that to be human is to be in relationship, to be in conversation. To be human is to have disagreement. To be human is to um, have more than one story. And to be human is to see different perspectives and to have conversation. Um, Now, a similarity between um, Ender, between humans and the buggers, is that 
like Ender, the buggers didn't know they were killing. They didn't know, and they have empathy and remorse for that. They feel the guilt and the weight of their actions, and we know that through Ender being Speaker of the Dead. So I used to say, I've said before on this podcast, that empathy is what makes us human, but these buggers have empathy in a sense. Um, they know the weight of what they've done. They know the feeling of the loss that they've taken from the humans. Um, and they're remorseful. And now I'm wondering if you can be remorseful without having empathy. And I think of Voldemort... I know, Harry Potter, but I think of Voldemort. Voldemort was never remorseful. Um, And I don't think he ever had empathy. I don't think he could put himself in other shoes. He knew how they were feeling, because he was a skilled legitimate. He could know what they were feeling, but he couldn't go down into that place and feel it with them. He might be able to sympathize, but I don't think he could empathize. And maybe that's why he was never remorseful. Um, But I definitely think remorse and empathy are connected. So this says to me that to be human is more how we engage with one another. To be human is to converse, to question, and to think critically, um, to be in relationship and conversation with one another. And, you know, I think that dogs have empathy, um, I know when I'm sad, um, and when I've been sad, my dogs will come up to me and, like, I remember one time I was really angry and upset and sad, and I was a child, and I was in timeout, and my dog, Jasper, he came up to me and he lied down right next to me and put his head in my lap and just sat there with me and just like let me pet him and um you know dogs they can pick up on our emotions and um they can offer us support and comfort in you know hard times and I think that's why a lot of people love dogs so much um but are they empathizing with us are they feeling what we feel and sitting in those feelings with us when they do that? I don't know. Do dogs have empathy? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm also kind of also wondering from this little conversation I've had with myself, kind of wondering, is Voldemort human? Like, He's the byproduct 
of a love potion. So he's not, like, naturally human. Like, yes, he looks human. Well, okay, Tom Riddle looks human and sort of acts human, but Voldemort does not look human. He looks snake-like and he's transformed his body so much. Um, but it kind of makes me think of Frankenstein. Um, the monster in Frankenstein, or I should say the creature in Frankenstein, was brought to life in an unnatural way um, through experimentation. Um, Voldemort was brought to life under the influence of a love potion. So that, you could say, is unnatural because of the influence of the love potion. The love Because he was brought into life under the influence of a love potion, that's why he can't love. Um, and in some ways, to love is to be human, isn't it? Um, and, yeah, I don't know. Is Voldemort human? I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, that kind of wraps up Ender's Game and this episode, Ender's Game, and my thoughts on the major themes in these last few chapters.